the 7 Seconds or Less podcast. This is a podcast about the NBA with a Phoenix Suns focus. My name is Max McCauley and I am joined, as always, by my co-host. He is the best Suns podcaster from Australia. His name is David Nash. David, how are you doing? I'm doing good, Max. Uh, a few qualifiers in there, but I'll take the title. I think it is undisputed that you are the best guy from Australia currently podcasting about the Suns. I'll happily take it until someone else steps forward. <laughs> Fair enough. So this week is just us, David. Last week we had the honor of having Sam Bassini on the podcast, and he was just fantastic. So if you haven't had a chance to listen to last week's episode, I highly recommend you go back and check that out. But this week, David and I are all by ourselves, and we're going to tackle the next episode of our Position Pod series. We're going to be talking about the power forwards on the Phoenix Suns roster. Specifically, we're going to ask ourselves the question, do the Phoenix Suns have a long-term answer at power forward? And if they don't, How do they find one? But first, David and I are going to do a little bit of rapid-fire news. David, earlier this week, our friend Evan Sidery reported that Devin Booker's contract contains performance escalators. Can you explain to the listeners what performance escalators are? Yeah, so I think this came around last week when we recorded with Sam, and so we didn't touch on it last episode, but I was definitely waiting on this news. It's it's not the most interesting thing going around, but it, it certainly is for me, so... Uh, you know, with him signing his rookie extension earlier this summer, he automatically gets 25% of the cap, but it can go up to 30 with some kind of incentives that are built into these specific rookie extensions. So uh, for all NBA, for defensive player of the year, which I think we can be sure isn't going to happen in Booker's case, and uh, the very slim possibility of an MVP next year, Booker could earn up to that 30% of the cap. So I'd also like to shout out to Michael Swartz, another friend on Twitter, who I believe is the first person who confirmed the actual percentages. So it it basically goes 27.5% if he makes third team All-NBA, 28.5% if he makes second team, and the full 30 if he gets any of the first All-NBA MVP or Defensive Player of the Year. So uh, yeah, it's interesting, Max, at, at least for me, and uh, it can change the, the Suns' cap room going forward as well. I know it's not technically legal under the CBA, but if Devin Booker actually wins Defensive Player of the Year, they should give him 100% of the salary cap. (laughs) We'll just play him because he'll be the best defensive and offensive player on the court probably if that was the case. But yeah, I will note that it goes from the more likely no All-NBA this year at 158 million total for his uh, extension to all the way up to 189 million if he gets that full 30%. And uh, probably means you know roughly five million uh, less to spend next summer in cap room if that were to happen. But probably last important note on this one, Max, is it has to happen next year. Uh, it's not something that can occur during the extension and and have this percentage just automatically kick in at some point. The structure of the contract is is locked in 
to start uh, the following season after after next one. I don't know about you, David, but I would probably trade $5 million in cap room for an MVP Devin Booker season next year. Yeah, I've seen a few people kind of uh, comment on, on these incentives and uh, you know, a few people in comment sections and things thinking it's ridiculous. But the the simple fact of it is for me is uh, I, I will happily lose that cap room if it means that Devin Booker is worthy of an All-NBA nod, which, you know, essentially means that he would be uh, one of the top 15 players in the NBA next season, which can only mean good things for the Suns. Especially considering the depth of the guard position in the NBA right now. I think last year, third-team All-NBA was Kyrie Irving and DeMar DeRozan, which is nuts. Exactly. So let's maybe throw to the schedule now for for rapid news. Another thing that we slightly touched on last week, but uh, you know maybe go a little bit more in depth on this episode when it's just the two of us. Yeah, it's a fun exercise to go through the schedule like this, isn't it? I mean, it's a little ridiculous because you know we have no idea what they're actually going to look like, what the other teams are going to look like. But listen, it's the off season. We're here to have a little bit of fun. Exactly. So I'll throw the first one to you, Max. I'll, uh, I noted on Twitter last week that Booker turns 22 years of age after just six games. Uh, into this season. So Phoenix start with Dallas, Denver, Golden State, the Lakers, Memphis, and OKC. Uh, He needs about 120 points, so 20 points per game to pass Kobe as uh, fifth on a leaderboard of 21 and younger players for total points. What do you think there? Do you reckon he can do it? Yeah, I think it's fair to expect Devin Booker to average 20 over those games. I mean, first of all, there's not like a lot of defensive stalwarts among those teams. And, And also... I think that maybe later on some of the other players like Aiton will will pick up some of the scoring load, but at, you know from the jump I think it's going to be a lot of Booker. Yeah, unfortunately he would need forty four points a game to pass Andrew Wiggins for fourth on that list. But wait, hold on, Andrew Wiggins? Yeah, he uh, he's on. It, it makes the leaderboard a little less prestigious, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, a lot less prestigious. Uh, but we've spoken about this privately a little bit. What's kind of your your early prediction for the, the first, say, 15 games of the season? So first of all, I used the Scott Howard model of picking games where I just quickly picked a team and then had 100% confidence in it. But uh, <laughs> I ended up going with 5-10. Uh, and 10. I think they're going to have a split against San Antonio, and then they're going to win one of the three games against OKC. So it may seem a little generous, but I think that's kind of how they're going to get there. Yeah, it's a pretty tough... Uh, month to start with I think so you know anywhere around that five and ten would probably be a good result and then it kind of frees up a little bit so um, you know maybe they can get back on track a a little closer to 500 um, you know after that initial tough start. Speaking of that David you're going to be getting into the month of December which I know you've been looking at and you specifically mentioned boxing day to me which I don't know if you know this but we don't have boxing day in America so maybe before you move on you can tell us a little bit about what the hell boxing day is (laughs) so boxing day is the day after christmas uh it's a big day here in terms of shopping sales and also cricket uh is when the the famous boxing day test starts so you know we celebrate boxing day in a typical australian way with with more food and, and drinking more than anything else but something that i always look out for because as we know the sun's uh, haven't had a Christmas Day game for a long, long time. So Boxing Day for me is, is the closest that it gets. I think Boxing Day sounds amazing. I have no idea why America has not adopted another day of eating and drinking, and I feel like we are way behind. Yeah, so in December, though, it uh, it, it opens all-star voting ar- around the middle of December based on past years. So that's kind of why I was looking at this month in particular and, and, and what the schedule looks like. Cool. So what do you think? Uh, well, kind of the opposite of, of what you have for the first 15 games of the season. I, I kind of see 10 of, you know, 10 winnable games out of uh, 16 for the month of December. So there's a, a little handy road trip actually around when 
all-star voting will first open and uh, we, we go out east and play the Knicks, the Wizards, the Nets, and Orlando on a, on a mini road trip. Uh, Boston's thrown in there too. So, yeah, I think that the Suns could get a little roll on it. It, it could be interesting to start all-star voting for, for Devin Booker's case. Yeah, that's probably part of why uh, our opening schedule is so difficult is because we have the Eastern bottom feeders in December and later on in the year. Yeah, speaking of all-star, Max, January gets maybe, you know, maybe even easier, I think, for the Suns. So... Uh, I, I'm not expecting Devin Booker to get automatically voted in uh, to the, the starting fives when it opens up in December, but uh, I was looking back again to, to previous years, and it's kind of the end of January when uh, the rest of the rosters get filled out and picked. So I wanted to do maybe a little rapid-fire kind of win-loss with you here for the, for the month of January. What do you think? Let's do it. All right, so just give me give me win or loss, and, and I'll count them up. So we start with... Uh, home to Philly. You know what? Let's start off the month with a fun surprise win at home against Philly. Alrighty. Uh, home to the Clippers. Loss. Home to Charlotte. Win. Home to Sacramento. Win. At Dallas. Loss because they're going to beat in the first game of the season. Home to the Nuggets. Loss. At Indiana. Loss. At Toronto. Loss. At Charlotte. They beat them earlier in the month, so loss. At Minnesota. I know this is back-to-back, so I'm going to say loss. And then a win at home in Minnesota. The corresponding win. Home to Portland. Loss. Actually, wait, change that to a win because I think Portland might be a bit of a disaster by this point. Sure. Uh, at Denver. Loss. At the Lakers. Loss. And at the Spurs. Loss. All right. You're 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 a little more negative on that month than, than I am. Uh, you've got us at five wins and maybe ten losses, I think. So maybe that doesn't bode too well for for Devin Booker's all-star selection. Uh, Although if he is deserving of an all-star selection, maybe a few of those ones you're on the borderline with uh, may turn into wins anyway. Well, I'll tell you this. Even though I think a lot of those teams are going to be difficult for the Suns, I think a lot of them are more offensively difficult than defensively difficult. So I think it'll still be a nice opportunity for Booker to make his all-star case. Yeah, and uh, yeah, as I said, I think there's a few borderline ones there that could really change the month's uh, win-loss total. Um, you know, it only takes a few more of those to be wins and we're, you know, almost at 500. Yeah, and that's the thing is they just need to be competitive in these games because when you get down to like the last final, you know, two or three minutes of a game, it kind of turns 50-50. The problem was last year we just weren't competitive in very many games and it's, it's hard to win a lot of games when you're doing that. Exactly. All right, David, let's finish this up with the final 23 games after the All-Star break. I'm not going to have you break each and every game down, but I'm going to ask you kind of an overarching question that will hopefully get at what they'll look like over those games, okay? Okay. Over those final 23 games, will the Suns be A, playoff contenders, B, tankers, or C, neither playoff contenders nor tankers, but just kind of like pseudo-competitive and just, you know, they're playing out the string as hard as they can, but they don't really have a shot at making the playoffs. I'm pretty confident of saying uh, option C there. Uh, I think the Suns really wanted to do it last year around the time that they were kind of getting okay and... You know, we saw local media kind of start to talk about whether they could make the playoffs and if they could make a move at the deadline. You know, with all the the talk this off season about wanting to be the most improved team and and put a really competitive team on the court, I think we're going to fight this one right through for for all eighty two games. Yeah, as long as they're reasonably close, kind of sort of in contention, I think I agree with you. I mean, if they start off the season and just have a horrible start, then maybe they'll end up tanking again, but. If there's any way for them not to end up taking again, I think I think they'll take that route. Yep. Okay, that's it for news. Let's move on to the Did You Know segment. But before we do, I just wanted to say one thing. There's There's been a couple of you out there, uh, <clears throat> Chris Koffel, who have been <laughs> criticizing my performance on Did You Know lately. I guess I've been getting, you know, some of the questions wrong. So 
I've rededicated myself to studying for this. I have, I've been looking through all the sun stats and numbers throughout all of history. So now I'm going to be able to dominate this, uh, this section. So screw you, Chris and David. Go ahead. All right. Let's, let's start the streak today. It's the Power Forward episode this week. So time to bring some four-man flavor to the Did You Know segment. Did you know that Marquise Chris shares being both a power forward and a number eight pick with a famous power forward of Suns past? Any guesses who that might be? I'll give you a clue on this one. He was drafted at number eight in the 81 NBA draft and was- Is it Larry Nance? No. Damn it. I'll give you one more chance. He was drafted by the San Diego Clippers. That doesn't help me even a little bit. (laughs) Max, it's Tom Chambers. Oh, I do know him. (laughs) A 6'10 forward out of the University of Utah who played five seasons with the Suns and 16 seasons total. He was a four-time All-Star Max, three of which were with Phoenix, and he had 20,049 NBA career points. In fact, Max, a second did you know here, and another massive test for you coming up too. Oh, God. Did you know that Chambers is one of two Hall of Fame eligible players with over 20,000 points who are not currently in the Hall of Fame? Any guesses who the other one is? Can you give me like a little hint? <laughs> I'll try help you out because it is very, very tough. I definitely wouldn't get it. But in keeping with the theme, he's also a power forward. He last played in 2014 after being traded by Toronto. Uh, traded to Golden State for Vince Carter, actually. He played with Dirk in Dallas, Arenas in Washington, LeBron in Cleveland, Kobe in LA, before ending with the Clippers. Is it Anton Jameson? Yay! Yay, I got one! Screw you again, Chris. (laughs) Antoine Jameson has seven less career points than Chambers, but both just over 20,000 and both not in the Hall of Fame. Back to Chambers now. He, of course, had some memorable moments in a Suns uniform. There was that dunk over Mark Jackson and, of course, the 60-point game. And he also shared that game with another past Did You Know member, Eddie Johnson. That game was against his former team, the Seattle Supersonics, and in 42 minutes max, Chambers shot 22 of 32 from the floor, 16 of 18 from the line, And he had 60 points, but also six boards, four assists, one steal, and two blocks. Importantly in that one, the Suns won 121 to 95. Now to round this one out, Max, the reason I mention his former team in Seattle is because Chambers moved from Seattle to Phoenix in the 88 offseason. The Suns, of course, just signed Trevor Ariza to a one-year $15 million deal to play power forward. But Max, Chambers was the first ever unrestricted free agent signing in the history of the NBA. Before 88, you could basically be drafted or traded and that was it. Players didn't really choose where to go without compensation for either team. Gar Heard from our intro music is an example of this. He left in 1980, but Phoenix got two third round draft picks for him. Chambers' agent actually told him not to sign his qualifying offer with the Sonics because he knew this change in the rules was coming. Days later, the NBA changed the rules And if you'd been in the league for seven years and played through two NBA contracts, you were allowed to move. So, Max, final quiz for you. Was Chambers' five-year deal with the Suns worth more or less than Ariza's current one-year deal with the Suns? I feel like you wouldn't be asking me this unless it was less, so I'm going to say less. You're two for three on this episode. Yeah! He made just shy of $10 million, which I still thought was a decent amount of money for back then when I saw it. Yeah. 
that's another did you know in the books and looking forward to discussing Ariza and a few other power forwards uh, in a little more length now. We've got lots of ground to cover. That was my favorite did you know in a while because I did not embarrass myself. <laughs> yeah, as David just alluded to, we are going to get into the power forward position today. I think we'll start with Trevor Ariza, but we'll also answer the eternal question, Marquise Chris or Dragon Bender. The debate between Suns fans always rages on. We'll also get a bit into whether Mikel Bridges can play power forward long term. And then when we inevitably conclude that we don't have the right answer on the Suns roster right now, we'll get into the 2019 draft and free agency classes. But let's go back to the beginning. David, what do you think about Trevor Ariza as the starting power forward for the Phoenix Suns? Well, Max, I think, you know, you and I have spoken about it quite a bit. We've covered it on previous pods. I, I covered a little bit in a recent article that I wrote for Bright Side of the Sun. I think all indications are that he is starting at the power forward position for the Suns. Uh, the, the front office seems to think so when they signed him. Uh, and I think you and I both seem to think so too. On the off chance that one of Marquis Chris or Dragon Bender just completely shows out in training camp, I guess it's possible that one of them might start at power forward and, and put Ariza in the small forward position. But that seems pretty unlikely. And if, you know, if one of those guys doesn't step up, I'm not really sure who else they're going to put there. Yeah. And I've touched on this a few times. It's about putting the most talented lineup out there rather than worrying too much about fit and, and position. So uh, I think it makes the most sense for Ariza to be out there as a four uh, because it allows you to play another more talented, deserving guy at small forward, whether that's Warren, Jackson, or, or maybe even Bridges, as we touched on a couple of episodes, Max. Yeah, and he's going to be the best defender on the team, probably. I mean, Shaq Harrison may have something to say about best defender, but he'll certainly be the most versatile defender on the team. He's also, you know, he's going to be one of the better shooters in the team. Yep. Yeah, he's not as good as Booker, Troy Daniels, and, you know, maybe possibly uh, Mikel Bridges, but he's going to be, you know, one of the better shooters in the team. So next to Aiton as a four, it makes a lot of sense. You want someone who can space the floor and also play defense next to Aiton. You also, with Booker in the starting lineup, you want someone who will space the floor for him and uh, play defense alongside him. So in terms of optimizing the two guys you want to build your starting unit around, it, it makes all the sense in the world to have a reason in there. Yeah, we've spoken about it before. I think he was kind of the perfect signing. You know, whether you agree on how much money that the Suns spent or, you know, whether they could have got two or three guys instead, that's kind of a whole nother conversation. But I think, you know, I'm certainly very happy that he's going to be a Sun next season. And uh, I think the Suns can do some interesting things on, on both sides of the floor. But I will note he has a single season high of 14.9 points per game and kind of generally projects as a you know, third option he's been a couple of times in his career, mainly actually a fourth option on a on a good NBA team. So it's an interesting one. What do you what do you think we can expect out of him kind of points wise uh, in the league next season in a Suns uniform, Max? Uh, you know, he may score like twelve or thirteen points a game. I don't think he's gonna be one of our primary options or maybe even secondary or tertiary options. I think that's gonna be guys like Booker and Ayton and then, you know, on the bench unit, hopefully it'll be guys like PJ. Yeah. Uh, he's really not here to be, you know, a scorer. He's here to, to fill the gaps. He's here to space the floor. He's here to play defense. He's here to do all the things that no one was doing on the Suns last year that was leading to breakdowns on both sides of the floor where mm -hmm. the offense would just go stagnant for, you know, quarters at a time and the defense would just allow layups and three-pointers just constantly. He's here to just fill those gaps, settle the team down, run Igor's system, and, and just hopefully get these guys playing consistent NBA basketball. He really is. And I think that the kind of fit, you know, whilst it is only one year, is like what you need long-term at the powered forward position for the Suns because, uh, yeah, he's going to be low usage. 
Uh, he's going to fill a few of those holes on both ends of the floor. I think the Suns can do some interesting things with you know, him and Warren or him and Jackson and have Ariza as a spot-up shooter on offense and uh, you know, keep the, the lanes open for, for some slashes and obviously keep some you know, maximum space for DeAndre to go to work as well. And then on the defensive end, I think you know, DeAndre matters here too. We, we touched on it last week with Sam. Uh, he's a big defensive presence, and that's kind of one thing that allows you to go more comfortably with a versatile four-man like Ariza on defense because uh, he has the length to keep up with most guys. But you know the the other worries of not playing a traditional power forward around you know rebounding and shot blocking and things like that. Hopefully, a, a guy like Aiton taking him at number one. That's really why you're taking him, Max, to to kind of have this versatile lineup beneath him, don't you think? That is absolutely the hope. And, you know, that's one of the great things about a reason why I like the signing so much. Because, you know, say Chris Rabinder, like I said earlier, breaks out in camp, you can you can slide him down to the three. Or say, you know, two of Warren Bridges or Jackson breaks out and you want to play two of them together. That's fine. You can do things like that. I think a reason provides the, you know, the level of versatility where you can move him around the lineup. He's not going to block anybody. If uh, if other guys are playing better than him, you can just sit him because you're not like long term invested in him. So, I really think he's a nice building block the Suns can use to to sort of figure out what they are next year, and and he can just fit around that. Yeah, and you know another thing that I've kind of come up with here for you know looking at the NBA in general, it it, it is a real shift, and there's kind of two points here. We harped on it before, and and you know general NBA media are harping on it as well. It's like you've got Boston with their kind of wall of wings that they can throw at you. Uh, Philly's trying to build a similar thing, not quite there yet. You know, the Warriors and, and Houston kind of were finishing playoff games with these interesting lineups, mostly built around kind of 6'6 six, six to 6'8 six, guys that you can throw out there. And now with Aiton, you know, the Suns can have lineups with Booker, Bridges, Ariza, which kind of gives you, and even Jackson gives you kind of, you know, a lot of defense around Booker and a lot of shooting around Booker and, uh, we haven't done the Booker pod yet, but you know I'm sure in that one we'll touch on very much about how the Suns should be doing basically absolutely everything to optimize his talent as the the kind of lead guy on the team next year. Definitely, and you know something you touched on, a lot of the better teams in the league right now are, are going with smaller lineups. They're not playing those big bruising power forwards, so I think that's kind of the direction the Suns are going to want to build in anyway because. If Booker and Aiton are as, as good as we hope they're going to be, you you can kind of put those guys out there with three really nice wings. Uh, you know, three wings can do you know playmaking, three point shooting, defense, whatever versatile guys, and and just sort of dictate the matchups. You know, other teams have to guard you too. It's important to remember that. Like exactly, if you can put a really good team on the floor, they can't just like put a big bruising power forward out there to stop you if, if they can't guard you. If that makes sense. Yeah, and I think the Suns are going to play you know quite fast. They were already quite fast last year, and I, I think them. They'll definitely continue to push the pace under Igor. So, yeah, I think that's a great point. I, I kind of had a little look at it. Um, and I think I, I could maybe get to five power forwards in the NBA, starting power forwards that would really have the potential to hurt the Suns on the defensive end. Um, I'll throw them out for you, Max, and see if you think there's there's anyone that I'm missing. So i got Kevin Love, uh, Blake Griffin, Millsap in Denver, Derek Favors, and maybe Julius Randle as a big bruiser that could really hurt you. But outside of that, I'm not sure there's too much more in the NBA. Yeah, I think I agree with that short list. And, you know, I'd point out that, one of the, for example, one of those teams on there is the New Orleans Pelicans, and they have Anthony Davis. So really, I, I don't, I'm don't. i not sure there's a lineup the Suns can put out there that's going to beat that team anyway. So it's really not something you get to worry about just yet. 
But that's actually maybe a nice segue into, you know, the Chris versus Bender discussion because if, you know, either Chris or Bender can, you know, show out in camp and show that they're capable, they might serve as a nice spot starter in, in matchups like the one you mentioned with Anthony Davis and Julius Randle. You know, if you're if you're not confident in Trevor Ariza taking the responsibilities of guarding Julius Randle, maybe Chris or Bender can do it. Yeah, and I think it's a good point by you, Max, is that, you know, ultimately Ariza is not a long-term solution on this roster. He's a very good solution for next season, but... Uh, yeah, the Suns kind of have to have one eye on the future for sure. They certainly do. And unfortunately, that future is going to be hitting them a little more quickly than I think they would like. David, you want to explain how the uh, Chris and Bender player options work? So uh, October 31st is the date. Uh, all players from that draft class with a fourth year team option need to have that picked up by that date. Um, it's kind of a, an old rule that used to match up pretty much with the start of the season. But with the season moving forward a little bit now, uh, the Suns essentially have five preseason games and seven regular season games to kind of have a have a look at Bender and Chris before they need to make that decision. So, Max, I'll throw it to you. Do you think they'll both be picked up? Do you think one will be picked up? What do you think? So, yeah, before I do that, I do want to make one more point, and that's that, you know, Bender's options for like $6 million next season, and I don't totally remember what Chris's is. Do you? Yeah, it's getting, it's getting up there. Uh, Chris's is just a, a couple of million short of that, given that he was taken, you know, four picks later. But uh, they're both getting up to valuable role player free agents potentially next next off season. So I think they're going to need to see something out of those guys in the uh, in training camp and in the first few games of the season. Yeah. As for my prediction, man, it's so tough uh, without having seen what these guys look like in training camp. But uh, it pains me to say it, but I, I think I'm going to have to go with they don't pick up Bender's option, but they pick up Chris's option just because Bender looks so bad in summer league and. Chris has kind of looked like he got in shape this summer. Wow. I'm uh, I'm sitting on the fence here. I think they'll both be picked up. Um, I think you've still got options. Um, and you know, I'm just not a fan of with either of them in their situations. I'm not a fan in general of not picking up four team options. I think I've said that in the past. But you know, with how young and inexperienced these guys were when they were drafted and uh, you noted it on the pod with Sam last week as well, I believe, if, if kind of the the situations that they were drafted into as well. Um, you know, I'm willing to give them uh, the extra year, particularly because I think we'll also see a spike in, in what valuable role players earn next offseason with a lot of money floating around. So I'm going to sit on the fence a little. I admire your courage with being able to pick one. Uh, it, it's not the one that I thought you would pick either, which is uh, even more surprising, but I, I can see the logic there for sure. And Uh, Probably the final thing that we should touch on with that is declining Bender's option may be more about the money side of things as you alluded to. It doesn't actually mean that he won't be back on the Suns the following season. They can still work something else out. I'm glad you just got into that because I was going to make that point is that I think one of the reasons why it makes a little more sense to possibly not pick up Bender's option is because it's sort of hard to see him outplaying $6 million next year in terms of getting another contract. So like... You know, if you if you decline it and he's a ten million dollar player because he just shows out because he's so good with Igor and Igor's system, I think you're more likely just to resign him because he's going to want to stay here. Whereas, you know, if you pick up his option and he's just the same he was before, you're you're way overpaying him at six million dollars a year. Yeah, exactly. And it, it could be a, a situation that we see with kind of player options, and and sometimes we're surprised when a player 
opts out of his player option but signs a, a longer deal with more guaranteed money. So yeah, maybe we see something like that with Bender with where player and team agree for, you know, a little less year by year money because he doesn't have a lot of options, but maybe more guaranteed years on the back of a, a promising season under Igor. So that's something that I've, you know, essentially just thought of on this pod and, and something that is an interesting thing to watch after October thirty first. Yeah, I'd love to be a fly on the wall of a Suns GM Ryan McDonough and his staff when they're discussing this. It's not going to be the easiest decision they've had to make. They just drafted these guys a few years ago and they have to make some pretty pretty tough calls on them. But let's move on to, let's start with Dragon Bender and talk about him as a player. Uh, I think we've, we've talked enough about how he looked at Summer League, which was not very good. But if you know, how do you see him developing in the future if he ends up you know, actually working out and maybe hitting something like his 60 or 70th percentile outcome? What do you see him being and what do you see him possibly providing for this team? I still think he's a valuable role player on a on an NBA team at his kind of ceiling. That's not really what you wanted or expected taking him at four with the kind of flashes of, of highlight tapes and things that we saw. But, you know, one thing that I've definitely admitted to is, you know, at times I thought he was going to be this really dynamic three-man uh, at times, I thought that he may be able to bulk up a little bit and be quite a interesting five man. But you know, I think I've I've pretty much settled that he's you know very much a, a four in the modern NBA, someone who's going to stretch the floor, but with another big man rather than on his own, and play valuable defense and and kind of be able to contribute in in a switchy defense as well like kind of touching on what we were talking about before with with wings I think Bender's someone that could slot into a group of wings like that and be able to you know switch around positions and uh, you know add pretty solid uh, versatile defense and, and hit outside shots that's kind of what we're looking for out of Bender going forward just with more consistency and and more confidence that's the word that keeps coming up Max what do you think the confidence point you touch on that's that's really the key point it's such a big part of what's what's going on with him uh, some listeners will probably remember and if you don't remember you should go back and watch Bender playing against OKC uh, last January and then against Denver uh, last February those games fully demonstrated why Bender was such a tantalizing prospect back in 2016. It's because he's a seven foot one guy who has this unique set of skills that you don't see in a lot of guys his size. You know, they in those games they were running the offense through him as a backup five. He was setting up at the high post, you know, spacing the floor because he's a threat to shoot, hitting cutters, making good decisions. It was things that. I mean, I don't know if there's a lot of NBA players who could even do that right now. And and that's kind of what makes Bender so interesting to me is that even if he doesn't become a star, he, even as a role player, if he could just figure it out to, you know, just a 50 to 60 percentile extent, he could be so useful and so different and just somebody that other teams just don't really know how to prepare for. And I think that's that really gets to the bottom of the divide between people who are out on Bender entirely and people who still are optimistic or have hope is that the people who are out entirely, I think, are focused focused mostly on what he's done so far and his statistics, which, by the way, totally fair to focus on that. But, you know, those of us like me and you, I think, who are optimistic are focused a little bit more on what we see his unique set of skills possibly being in the NBA. And, you know, it's not all theoretical. He has shown at times, like in the OKC and Denver games, that it's there. It's just a matter of whether it can be brought out of him consistently. And I think a lot of us are hoping that Igor can do that. But, you know, it's definitely far from a sure thing. 
Yeah, I think it was clearly the uh, infatuation with him and taking him at four in that draft. I think that's kind of what McD and the Suns probably saw is this really unique talent that could bring, again, the the team something that oppositions aren't used to and, and really dictate the style of play like you touched on before. And I think that's where the Suns are still moving. But moving on to Chris, Max, I... Uh, you did pick him over Bender. I'm not going to let you live that one down. So I see, you know, probably before the Holmes trade, I saw uh, Bender and Chris both being able to get minutes in the rotation this year. But, you know, now I kind of see it maybe being a battle for minutes between the two of them, which, you know, I think is certainly a good thing rather than a bad thing. And, and, and not gifting minutes to guys is, is one way that this team can change their culture going forward. But do you see Chris as more of a four or, or a five uh, succeeding in the NBA? You know, kind of like the Bender question. What What's his kind of high ceiling outcome still in the NBA and what position is that at? <laughs> well, before I get into that, I do want to defend myself in, in that that was a prediction and not what I would do, mainly because Chris is cheaper uh, and they probably have more confidence that they can keep Bender if they decline his option. But turning to Chris really quickly, I think at this point I see Chris as like a backup rim running five, like a small ball lineup. Yeah. Defensively, I think he was a little underrated last year. Not a lot underrated, but a little underrated because, you know, when he was actually on the court, he had a decent effect on the defense. He was not on it enough because he still fouls too much and, you know, he makes mental mistakes and gets pulled. But, you know, the numbers were kind to him on defense in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. The offense, though, is, is just completely lost. I mean, at this point, really, what he is is he's a three-point shooter and a in a lob finisher, but he can't shoot threes at you know, any kind of respectable level. And while he does finish lobs, he's not like particularly good at you know getting open for lobs. He just he finishes them when he's there. His offense, I mean, he was one of the worst offensive players in the league, I would say. And at this stage, it's just hard unless he makes like these crazy gains in certain areas. Like, what what is he really going to add to his offensive game? Like, he, to me, it's it's really going to depend a lot on his three point shot. Maybe if that gets a lot better, he could he provide a value on offense. But yeah, at this stage, it's it's hard for me to see him getting much better. And and assuming I'm right, and assuming that his projection is that he's really just more of a backup five rim runner kind of guy. It shows you why I'm more interested in, in Bender because if, if both guys sort of meet the projections that I think are most likely for them right now, you know, assuming Bender can get to a playable level with his confidence, you know, in a playoff series, you're not going to be scared of a backup rim running five. It's just somebody who's, you know, there to soak up minutes. But somebody like Bender, even if he's not a star, he'll he'll provide these strange, you know, matchup problems that teams have to prepare for. He's like a, he could be a playoff X factor who presents, you know, X, Y, and Z problems, whereas... Chris, I don't see as presenting the same sort of matchup issues. Does that make sense at all? It does, and I think it brings up a very valid point in this conversation from you, Max, and that's that whilst Chris may actually at this point look like more of a guaranteed role player in the NBA compared to Bender, I think at their ceilings, what Bender can still bring to an NBA team and, and hopefully the Suns is more unique and, and more more akin to, to winning basketball uh, and winning playoff games. So yeah, I think that's a really great point as Bender could be someone that teams have to scout for maybe uh, over someone like Marquise Chris. Yeah, and you alluded to it. I, Chris and Rashawn Holmes do very similar things. Uh, I don't think you can really say that about Bender and anybody else, really, that they do the same things, you know, that's, that's one thing that really differentiates those two in my mind. And another great point, Max, is something I've thought about in the last week or so is how much Holmes appears to kind of be what Chris may be in the NBA going forward. And I worry what that trade may then means for, uh, you know, what the Suns believe Chris can actually bring to the team next season, because it's it's almost like they make, made a trade to 
to get an upgrade uh, and a guy that they can count on a little bit more at that uh, backup five role, which is definitely where I saw Chris seeing most of his minutes in, in the upcoming season. But again, maybe that's just a cheap way to make him fight for minutes rather than be gifted for them uh, like he has in the past, Max. Yeah, and like I mentioned before, it's, it's been apparent from some pictures by the team's posted and that Chris has posted that he's in much better shape now. It seems like he's slimmed down. He's, he's going more towards the athletic build, where whereas you know last, last offseason in the summer league, for, I think... Whether it was from the team or, or his people, they for some reason he decided to bulk up yep. and get into like the you know this sort of like almost fat Chris shape, which did not work out. It was an abject disaster in summer league. So I'm glad to see him embracing the more athletic build, going towards the more you know backup rim running five. Like I said, I think that's probably the best place for him. So you know I'm I'm happy to see that. But I, again, I think we're gonna have to see both Chris and Bender in preseason and such before we make any grand predictions because this is such a big off season for both of them, and it's gonna be really important how they come into the year yeah i I think that's probably a a decent way to end the chris bender discussion and and as the listeners are probably surmising i think it's it's ultimately unlikely that either of those guys are are the answer next to ayton in in the starting five and, and may more project to be role players in a bench unit on a good nba team is that fair to say max i agree i think it's more likely than not that bender and chris are role players if anything and that we will be looking for solutions at the power forward position going forward however the suns may actually have the answer to the power forward question on their roster already david do you want to talk about the comments ryan mcdonough made about Mikel bridges after drafting him yeah, I think it was directly after the draft that he mentioned him as a 3-4 in the NBA. He definitely didn't mention him as a 2-3 or, or just a solid 3. So I think he sees that versatility and flexibility with Bridges going forward. Uh, and it's interesting with who they brought in in Ariza on a one-year deal. You know, Bridges very much matches up to Ariza kind of out of college in the way that their bodies look. Sam actually, Vecini last week on the pod doubted whether uh, Bridges might be able to put on the kind of required weight that Ariza even has at the moment to play the four, which I think is a valid point with the way his frame looks at the moment. But Bridges is 6'7", 190 pounds with, you know, a seven foot wingspan coming out of college. And uh, that matches up pretty well with Ariza, who was, you know, 6'8", uh, with, you know, maybe 10 more pounds coming out of college. And uh, Ariza has a, a slightly longer wingspan in, in kind of a seven one seven two wingspan, but yeah, I think it's a it's really interesting that they've brought Ariza in to play what we think is that role this year, and then Bridges might be the the guy that we're looking for going forward at, at the power forward position. Yeah, I think that'd be a really nice outcome for him. And interestingly enough, Mikel Bridges actually compared himself to Trevor Ariza after he was drafted. He did. He did. But I will say that before we pronounce him the next Trevor Ariza, I, I think people are being a little too quick to put. Mikael Bridges into a box. He's an older prospect. You know, he's older than Devin Booker, so I, I get why people think that the upside there might not be as high as with some other prospects. But at the same time, even older prospects can sometimes come into the NBA and, and make some gains that you didn't see in college. You know, you're not going to classes anymore. You're you're in a professional strength and diet program. We have professional coaching. And just There are a lot of things that can change with a player's body and his skill set and when they get to the NBA that you didn't necessarily see in college. So... I wouldn't be entirely shocked if Mikel Bridges made some unexpected jumps in some places. I think that's a really important point. I've kind of fallen into that trap. You know, I've, I've nicknamed him Glue already as kind of a 3 and D guy and, and almost put him in that box. But if there is one thing, Max, what's the what's the kind of 
one thing outside of that 3 and D box that we should be looking out for next season with Bridges that he might show some of the fans that he has a, an extra string to his bow? To me, it's his off-the-dribble shooting. You know, Mikel's already an excellent spot-up shooter, obviously, and part of the reason is because he is just a ridiculously high release point. It's hard to block a shot. So, it, you know, if he could shore up his handle and get to the point where he can, you know, take up people closing out on him or even people who are, you know, guarding on the perimeter and just take a few dribbles and just rise up over them and shoot over them. Like, yep. that's an offensive weapon that I think is going to be pretty difficult to defend against. It's almost kind of reminiscent of Chris Middleton, who a few smart people on Twitter have compared Mikel Bridges to. I think that would be just an excellent outcome for him. He's definitely going to have guys closing out on him hard with the way he can shoot as a spot-up guy, you know, almost straight away as an NBA rookie. So, uh, yeah, I think we saw that a little bit. There's, I think I've brought up one highlight in particular from Summer League, which which keeps sticking in my mind with Bridges, where I just wish he finished the dunk because it definitely would have been in, in more people's minds if he did. And he uh, dribbled out of the corner on a closeout and, you know, almost put a guy on the poster. I can't remember who it was, but uh, it was the first time I'd really seen a thing like that from Bridges. I've admitted in the past I didn't really scout him much because I I didn't see the Suns making a deal like that to move up to you know his range in the draft. But he definitely shows flashes with that stuff, and that that could open up a, a whole lot of stuff for both him and the team going forward. But you know, speaking of falling into traps, I would just note that I took that McD comment about him playing as a four and and looked at his kind of wingspan and you know automatically thought to guys like Draymond Green and Millsap in the NBA, but uh, yeah, I think with what we've touched on already in this episode around playing versatile lineups, I think he's definitely not going to be able to put on the weight of those guys that kind of had 40, 50 pounds on him coming out of college. But you know, I really think of guys like Ariza, as we mentioned, and maybe someone like Andre Robertson. Uh, you know, he's very valuable in this league. People have forgotten about him because of his injury last year. And, you know, his one knock is if he could shoot, he would be an incredibly valuable NBA player. And uh, we know Mikhail can shoot. So, you know, he matches up quite well with him from a, a height and wingspan perspective and is a kind of effective small ball four as well. So, you know, maybe Mikhail is that solution going forward at the four for the Suns, particularly as we've noted again with a guy like Aiton in the middle. Yeah, the thing about the Roberson comparison is that Roberson is just so strong and so quick. And, you know, Mikhail's not there yet. But again, I don't want to put a box on him. So I'm not going to say that Mikhail Bridges can never get there. But. Man, if, if he does, though, I will say, if you can add Mikel Bridges' jump shot to Andre Robertson's you know, defense, man, that would be that'd be something. And, and worthy of, of such a move uh, in, in the draft by then, I think. I think one of the points of this exercise that we wanted to demonstrate is that n- neither David nor I thinks that there's a long-term solution to the power forward position on this roster. There might be some nice pieces, but probably not like a long-term starter, certainly not a long-term star at that position. Yep. So, you know, it might be time to start looking, you know, what sources of that player could there be? And I know Suns fans don't want to look at the trap just quite yet because, you know, we just came off a couple of seasons of tanking. But, David, there's a chance that we could, you know, maybe possibly acquire a pretty good player out of the draft this year without tanking, isn't there? Yeah, there is, Max. And as you noted, I uh, don't want listeners to think that, you know, we're moving to the draft and therefore thinking that this season could be a, a lost cause because, you know, I think with these changes, there's a real chance that Phoenix finish third or fourth last in the Western Conference with a a relatively good record, but still, you know, seventh, eighth or ninth overall in the NBA. And, 
the change in the the lottery odds means that teams around that you know have better chances at, at top pick so it's worthy to to look at some of these guys so just to summarize a little the top seed used to get a 25 percent chance at the number one pick now that's been flattened out where the top three all have 14 percent each and that kind of affects everything flowing on from there so uh, now, if you have the worst record on the league, you're only guaranteed a top five pick, whereas it used to be a top four, as we've seen with the Suns the last couple of years. Uh, and, you know, I've, I've used the example of, you know, saying finishing with the seventh worst record. You've got like a, a seven or eight chance now to have one of those top picks uh, versus you used to really only have a four or five percent chance at the top three. So as we're going to touch on, there's there's quite a lot of power forwards at the top of the class, the way it looks at the moment. And even... Uh, without a disastrous season, the Suns may still have a chance to get one of these guys. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that's why it's it's worth talking about. And fortunately, it's kind of a fun draft class to talk about. It's not it's not full of traditional, you know, small forwards or power forwards. Really, it's full of some tweeners in those positions. And yep. yeah, it may make more sense to talk about this in the context of each guy. But I think it's going to be an interesting one in terms of trying to analyze fit. We'll put R.J. Barrett to the side for now because he's not a forward. He's more of a guard, maybe a small forward. But, you know, we talked about him with Sam Vecini last week, so we won't talk about him now. Let's start with Cam Reddish, another candidate to go number one in the draft. David, you've told me recently that you like Cam Reddish. What do you like about him? I love Reddish. Uh, I, I haven't dug a lot into the draft, but I'll definitely hop on the back of, of what you and Sam said last week. Uh, with Barrett being the kind of consensus number one guy. But if we're focusing on power forwards, uh, Reddish is probably uh, my number one guy from that perspective. He's kind of a real floor spacer, uh, real versatile defender. Again, what we've spoken about this whole pod around where the NBA is moving from the kind of 3-4 position. Uh, He is a 7-1 wingspan, again, kind of in the mold of those Robertson, Ariza, Bridges types. And uh, looks to be, you know, rather versatile, and uh, he's going to Duke with a lot of other top prospects, and uh, he's definitely one that I'm going to be keeping an eye on as a, a potential power forward for the Suns going forward. Yeah, so I've liked what I've seen from Cam Reddish. I've obviously not scattered him in person. I've only seen him on YouTube and such, and he's ob- he's very, very impressive, but I will say that friends of the show, Sam Vecini and Cole Zwicker, have both seen him in person, and I've heard them talk about him, and, and he's a little less impressive when you see him play you know, consistently in person in games, because his effort level is not always there. He floats a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, may not be the case forever. As, you know, as Sam said last week, DeAndre Ayton had the same problem in high school. Yep. So Cam Reddish very easily could, you know, come into college and assuage all those concerns by just being awesome and consistently trying every single night. But, you know, it's something to monitor going through the season. Yeah, I'm always going to defer to guys like Cole who who put a hell of a lot more work into this stuff. So I'll be interested to, to see if he can change that opinion for guys like Cole and Sam who cover the draft pretty extensively. Uh, in this college season but what do you think of Zion Williamson Max I'm not too high on him but uh, I'm intrigued to see what your thoughts are on him as a prospect and then you know as a power forward in the NBA at at his height I'm really excited about Zion Zion is freakish man I I tweeted the other day I think there's a chance he might be a you know one of those athletes who's just never seen before He's, you know, he's between 275 and 285 pounds somewhere, probably yeah. about 6'5", and just, he can dunk from the free throw line. He's he's not, I don't, you know, sometimes you see a guy come through and say, oh, he's super athletic, he compares to this guy. I'm not sure there's a lot of guys Zion compares to. I haven't, I haven't seen a lot of people like him, and yeah. there are definitely concerns. I'm glad we get to see him for a year in college, because we're really not sure if he can do very much. Like, we know he's like a baseline 
skill level guy. He can, you know, he can pass a little bit. He can dribble a little bit. He can defend a little bit. Not excellent in any of those areas, but at this stage, it kind of looks like his freakish athleticism is going to make up for that. But you know, we get a whole year to watch him against college competition to see if that's the case there. And I think it's going to be it's going to be fascinating to follow. He's going to be a prospect kind of unlike we've seen in a while, particularly not in, you know at least in a few years. But man, even if he's great at Duke, there's still going to be a question of whether he can bully people the same way at the NBA level. So <laughs> I wouldn't want to be the general manager having to make a decision on Zion. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Max, and something that you know I haven't really considered with Zion is you know he could have been that guy that came straight out of high school into the NBA, taken quite high and then completely bust because of these potential negatives with him. And, you know, we touched on it quite a bit when we are in our early episodes covering the draft is how hard it is to project guys like Michael Porter and things without a a season of college to look at. So uh, a gutsy move by Williamson to to do the full year at college at Duke. And um, yeah, it'll certainly give us a a lot of tape to go on there. Oh my God. If you had to make a decision on Zion coming out of high school, just good luck. You're just basically taking random risks there. (laughs) But uh, let's move on to another guy. This guy's interesting. He's a French power forward about 6'9". I think you pronounce his name as Sekou Dumboya. David, you've seen a little bit of him. What do you think? That's about as good a pronunciation as I'm going to give it. So, um, yeah, he's an international prospect, looks to be the kind of highest international guy on the radar at the moment. He's about 6'9", definitely a traditional forward in the NBA, I think. And, you know, as you said, he's very much a high-risk, high-reward guy at the moment. Um, You know, international guys as we've seen, are kind of given that label by way of just being international guys to begin with. But yeah, there's not a lot to go off with him at the moment and uh, a guy that won't be playing college this season. So it'll be interesting to see whether he kind of floats back in the pack or or whether he really rises up um, playing in a professional league. Again, I don't want to dwell on it too much, but we have covered this a lot with guys like Dontich and Bender in the past of you know, it, it's very different playing in a professional league, fighting for minutes, and uh, makes it very hard for guys who who cover the draft to to work out where to slot them uh, in the kind of you know early lottery positions. Yeah, and I'll say just real quickly, I think you know the top of this class is very good. I think RJ Barrett's a legit number one. I think that you know Zion and Cam Reddish could both be legit top three prospects. But where you start to see this class fall off a little bit is you know Dubois is going to go you know six or seven, and I think in last year's draft he's you know scraping the back of the top 10 or maybe even, you know, scraping the back of the lottery. So it kind of shows you what we're looking at here. There's a bit of a fall off in the 2019 draft. Yeah, definitely. So he, you know, with a, a decent sun season might be one guy uh, that falls in, in the sun's range. And don't forget, we may also have a Milwaukee pick uh, if it conveys this year, but uh, it will more than likely convey the year after. But another guy who might be in our range, depending on how he goes again, returning to college is uh, Jonte Porter, who we discussed again in our early pods covering the draft. And I think we both really liked him, but I think you were probably higher on him than I was and and quite bummed when he uh, dropped out of the draft last season, Max. So uh, what do you think about him uh, and his, you know, maybe potential fit with a guy like Aiton now that we have Aiton instead? I love, love, love intelligent players who can shoot. And you know that Jonte Porter is one of those guys. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of him. I'm, I'm a little worried that he's not going to be a four because he's not super quick and athletic. Uh, he might be more of a backup five because I don't know if he has the rim protection to be a starting five. But yeah, I love the guy. And next to Aiton, I'm not sure if I love it as much because I think they're probably both more natural fives. Although, you know, you got to say that you want somebody who's smart and who can shoot next to Aiton. So that makes some sense. But, you know, also he could be very useful as like a backup five in a, on a team with Aiton. So yeah, I, I love Jonte Porter. 
But again, remember, a lot of this depends on whether he can actually get himself into shape, which I think he will, but you know, he was not in shape last year. That covers the draft and, and hopefully not a conversation that we're having to cover too much early on in the sun season. And, and maybe the the shift will be that it'll move more to looking at free agents and, and maybe trades to, to fill this power forward spot. It's obviously the biggest hole on the roster as well as point guard, depending on what happens uh, there with, with Booker and, and Knight and, you know, obviously just drafting a Kobo. But, um, you know, there's there's probably more questions at the power forward position. So maybe the Suns will look to, to fill it with, with cap space next summer, Max. Yeah, it's, it's very possible. And, you know, as we'll get to in our point guard episode, the 2019 free agent point guard crop is, is, is incredible. It's one of the best point guard free agent crops I've seen. Uh, but the power forward one, it's not so bad either. There's some interesting names there, David. Do you want to do you want to get into who's available for the Suns there next summer? Yeah, there, there's quite a lot out there. There's not the big names of say the point guard market as you've said of 2019. But yeah, you know, I've kind of grouped them into to good and bad. So I'll start with the bad and get them out of the way early. Uh, we probably don't want to see either of the Morris twins back in a Suns uniform the following season. So we'll discount those guys who have just signed with Rich Paul and will probably be looking for for decent paydays in free agency. Wait, you're saying that the Morris Twins represented by Rich Paul, unlikely option for the Suns? Uh, I'll I'll give it a 0% chance, Max. Uh, Jabari Parker and and Rudy Gay are are two other names. Uh, I think Jabari obviously is an option and and Rudy will be an unrestricted free agent, but uh, you know, they're kind of danger names that you don't want to see linked to the Suns, but you know, there's some guys in, in the next crop that would be interesting. You know, a guy like Nikola Mirotic uh, is an unrestricted free agent talking about, you know, a, a floor spacer and, and looking for an ideal guy to, to pair with Aiton. He might be an intriguing name for the for the Suns. And and then there's guys like Aminu, uh, Tobias Harris, who's probably looking for a bit of a payday himself after his kind of resurgence. Uh, seeing him on Team USA earlier th- uh, in this summer is, you know, kind of reminded me how, how much a, a player's career can change very, very quickly in the league. And then, you know, I probably wouldn't rule out someone like Trevor Ariza. Uh, you know, we've touched on it before. JJ Reddick got the big balloon payment for Philly and, and finds himself back there again after they, you know, sniffed around some of the bigger free agents. And depending on the, you know, season that Ariza has with the Suns this year, maybe that'll be an option. Uh, and we will look at Ariza at being more of a long-term solution. Uh, obviously not long in, in terms of matching up with the timelines of Booker and Aiton, but he he might be around for a few more years yet. Yeah, and I think the reason why the, the J.J. Reddick thing worked so well is because, you know, they gave him that fat one-year deal and it worked out tremendously. They, you know, that team overachieved. They, they won 53 games, I think it was. They made a nice little playoff run, and he was a big part of it. And it made sense for him to come back again at a reduced rate because he wanted to be there. It went well. He fit well, and the team's going to you know, see with him going forward. And hopefully the same sort of thing happens with Ariza. Maybe not to that extent, but, you know, if, if they if the Suns you know, win 38 games and you know, really overachieve, have a great season, I think it makes a lot of sense for the Suns to bring Ariza back, whether at a discount or not. Good point. But I do think it's probably more likely that they move on from Ariza and go a little bit younger at the position. And the absolute dream would be Nikola Mirotic, who's going to be an unrestricted free agent leaving the Pelicans. Uh, he's not only a wonderful shooter, but he's got kind of an underrated offensive feel to his game and also a very underrated defensive game. That guy is an extremely solid defender. He has a reputation as not being one, I think primarily because he's a white European, but 
I mean, he's, he's very solid in that end. I, he's been awesome next to Anthony Davis, and I think he would be similarly awesome next to DeAndre Ayton. He is very solid, Max, and I think another thing that people think is that he's maybe older than what he actually is. I don't know if it was the beard or or when he came over to the NBA, but he's only 27 years of age, so he kind of fits right in that perfect slot of you know veteran-type players that you might be looking to add to a, a younger core. So, yeah, I think we can probably call it right now as the... The seven seconds or less pods preference for next offseason right here, right now, would be uh, a guy like Nikola Mirotic uh, at the power forward position. I will sign off on that right now. The more I think about it, the more I think he is really the ideal of what you're looking for in a you know a front court partner with DeAndre Ayton. Yeah, and it's probably unlikely, Max, but um, you know we may see a deadline move to fill this uh, position rather than waiting for free agency. Maybe guys. You know, who knows what happens with the Pelicans this year? They're, they're probably a, a, another Anthony Davis injury away from really having to make some hard decisions. So, you know, with Miritic hitting free agency, uh, maybe you can uh, get him over early and, and not run the risk of losing him um, in July. Yeah, it's all about context with these things, right? You, you never can predict this in advance. You know, maybe Anthony Davis gets hurt the first game of the season and Devin Booker is playing at a huge, 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 you know, MVP-ish level and... Their roles are reversed, and the Suns are a playoff contender, and the Pelicans are a tanker team. And then maybe at that point, you know, the Pelicans know they're going to lose Miritich for agency, and they want to trade him. You just can't totally predict these things. That's probably a good point to end on. We've made a pretty uh, clear preference there for the for the power forward position going forward. So going to be interesting, Max. I think it was a really diverse kind of conversation here which really just shows that there there are a number of options on the roster and then you know potential options outside of the roster going forward but the question's probably not answered just yet at this stage but uh with Bender Chris and you know maybe even Bridges for instance maybe a full season next year will will be a lot closer to answering the question yeah you know it's a wide open question with many many different answers which keeping with that theme is why I'm going to ask you this week in seven seconds or less Three wide-ranging questions with many, many different possible answers. Let's get weird. Let's go over the rules real quick. Seven seconds or less is a segment where one of us asks the other three questions for which the other has not prepared and for which the other only has seven seconds or less to answer, although we never actually follow that rule. David, are you ready? Ready. First question, the most normal of my questions I'm going to ask you. Who is the best power forward in the history of the NBA? Oh, God, putting me on the spot. The best power forward in the NBA, Max. I am going to say a guy who didn't play a lot of power forward late in his uh, career, but uh, Tim Duncan is a traditional power forward for mine, particularly in the era that he was in his prime. So for mine, he is the best power forward in the history of the NBA. Absolutely. You know, whenever somebody asks one of the Spurs mainstays what the what the key to success was, you know, whether it's Greg Popovich or Tony Parker, they'll, you know, invariably say that Tim Duncan was the key. Exactly. And uh, all, the, all the other things that he brings, you know, off the court as well, I think add to his resume of why he uh, is deserving of that tag. Okay, question two. We're going to get a little weird here. If you could transplant Coach Igor's brain into any current Suns player, to whom would you give Coach Igor's brain? <laughs> Another weird one, Max. Uh, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna give a little link here. I'm gonna say DeAndre Ayton. I think as a coach, he'll be, you know, trying to achieve that somewhat and getting Ayton to think the way he thinks and and teaching Ayton the things that he knows. So. Uh, you know, I don't think it's all that weird or, or far-fetched to think that this season uh, he's 
kind of looking to achieve such a thing with Aiton and, and really uh, get get Aiton thinking the correct way and, and the right way for the team. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to go with that one. Okay, question number three. David, are you ready? This is probably the weirdest question that we've asked in this podcast before. <laughs> Let's do it. If both Igor and I, myself, your, your podcast co-host, were drowning and you could only save one of us, which one would you save? You're dead, Max. <laughs> I didn't say it was going to be a hard question. I said it was going to be a weird question. Ah, uh, yeah. Unfortunately, you go under. It would be a very tough decision for me, but, uh, you know, my, my love for Eagle knows no bounds, Max. That was 100% what I expected you to say. <laughs> well, we certainly got weird. Yep, that was my goal, and I think I achieved it. I think that's it for us, though, David. Everyone, please follow me. My name is at MaxMCC11 on Twitter. Please follow David. He is at the Four Point Play. On Twitter, and please follow our podcast. It's at Seven Sol Pod on Twitter, and please, 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 if you could rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast, it very, very, very much helps us out. David, thanks so much, man. That was fun. Thanks, Max, and yeah, that, that's an, another good point by you. This pod is uh, that really helps us out, and we've we've got a couple more of these positional pods left, which have been really fun, and and we should have a guest back very soon too. Yeah, we may be talking about a certain shooting guard soon, but until then, thanks, guys. 